Mm-hmm. Alvin. Alvin. Boy, oh boy, so would we. We're trying. We pedal as hard as we can around here. Glad to have you aboard pedaling with us. Uh, the Radio Ranch on the Friday edition. The Roger Sales, and I think my co-host on Friday is Brent Winters probably. If he's not here yet, he'll be here directly. And uh, the date stamp today is February 16th. Desi Sace in Spanish. And uh, we're on a bunch of platforms, and the guy that d- orchestrates all of this is one Paul Beaner. You, you orchestrator, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just had to find my mute button. Good thing it was not too far away from my fingertips. Um, we're on EurofolkRadio.com, of course. Uh, we're also uh, mirrored on Global Voice Radio Network. Uh, the links to those two platforms, as well as other links, uh, including the FCC links, so you can join us on the show, are on ExposeTheMatrix.com. ExposeTheMatrix.com. We're also on HomeNetwork.tv, FreedomNation.tv, 106.9 WBOU-FM in Chicago. Thank you, WDRN Productions and WBOU. And we're also on uh, Go Live. TV and streamlife.tube. Loads of fun. Yikes. Okay. Morning, Paul. Morning, Francine. We got Brent with us yet, or is he still uh, bringing up the rear end? He's, I I believe, well, there he is. He just showed up. Right on cue. Right. Right on cue. All right. Uh, uh, Let him get situated, situated in, settled into the seat there. Morning, Brent. Morning, Roger. How you doing? I'm doing okay, Roger. Are we on the air? Yes, yes sir. we are. Live and live and in livid color. We're talking to people all over the world. Is that right? Well, maybe. Yeah, if there's some listeners out there, we certainly got that reach. Oh, we're in downtown from Chicago out. Into, I've heard we're clean to England and over into Europe. Well, we're worldwide. Anybody with an internet connection can dial us in, and whether they know about us and want to hit listen to two different uh, different points. But I know we've had some listeners in Thailand, and uh, you know we've got some in Jolly Old. We got a few in Europe. Got a couple up in Scandinavia that I know of. Got one down in South Africa. Uh, so we got a scattering, a smattering. If the dictator um, of North Korea is listening, there's a couple of things I'd like to say to him. Okay, well, he may be, so why don't you whip it on him? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, um, I'm going to have to put my boys out and find out where he is and what he's doing and see if I can get him to listen. There you go. Give him, Put well, some pressure on him, Brent. Yeah, but- uh, <laughs> we had something interesting yesterday that came up, Brent, that you might be interested in. I'm hoping that Bo is with us today. We had a new student, Bo, from Arizona. Uh, uh, and I said, uh, Bo, what do you do for a living? He says, well, I'm a gold miner. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And I said, well, I'll be darned, man. The guy that's with us tomorrow, that's how he started his whole career, was out gold mining out there and got interested in the law because of claim stuff. And so I don't know if Bo's with us today or not, but he's hooked up with a guy that's been gold mining out there for 40 years. And uh, they think, evidently, from what I took from what he said, that they've found something viable and they're about ready to start digging a hole. So I don't know. I was hoping he'd be with us today. Bo, you with us today, my friend? It doesn't sound like he is, but anyway, I thought that was very interesting, and hopefully oh, you get a chance to chat with him and relay. I remember you telling us you met Barry Goldwater out there one time and some of your adventures when you were doing that. Oh, I just had a fellow ask me this morning if I'd make a presentation on gold. I said, uh, PowerPoint work? He said, yeah, PowerPoint's what we need. So I'm, I'm anxious to do that, and I sat down this morning and jotted down all the things I need to say and what I want to say. One of the things I'd want to say is that anybody that's interested in mining gold and they say, where do you look for it? And the answer is gold is where you find it. And the closer you get to it, the more resistance it has. Boy, could I tell you stories about that? Yeah, there's a lot of that, too. And it's going to become more important, and it will always be important. Gold will always be important. And it will yes, it will. As, as time goes along, you know. But, it's uh, such a you know there is nothing in the world in all, in all honesty now of holding an ounce of gold in your hand it just yeah. has a feel to it that ju- you know it's substance okay yeah, yeah. and um, that's the great danger of it and i knew a lot of fellows when i was in the gold fields that were struck with a fever and they'd have a nugget they found and they spent the rest of their lives wanting to show uh show other people their nugget and they'd just almost fawn over it. It's fever. It is a fever. And if gold yep. ever gets to the point that it's anything but money, anything but money, anything but a tool, it will consume your life and destroy you. <laughs> and if you want to know what gold can do to people, and this is no exaggeration, I've seen it more than once in the gold fields. All these dope smoking freaks out there crawling around over the desert like tarantulas finding gold, <laughs> <laughs> eating sardines and crackers. And then come to town and try to sell what they found at the big companies, and the big companies take advantage of them, you know. Mm-hmm, of course. Things. But um, if you ever watch that that uh, fantasy movie, uh, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. old Gollum. Gollum. Yes. He had what I'd call the gold fever. Same thing. You, you, you're so enamored with it that it becomes, it consumes you instead of you using it as a tool to do what God wants you to do. That is a danger. And it happens. My precious. Yeah, well, yeah, my precious. And once you hold it in your hand, as you said, it can have that effect. Oh, boy, it can have that effect. But, Roger, I want to bring something else up, too. I'd never had a response from the, our show as much as I had a response uh, last show that we had. People contacting me and were so uh, appreciative of the discussion that we had with Joe. And I had one fellow that wants to replay it on his program and well you know yes right i do um and i i was enlightened quite a bit too and uh the older i get the more i understand i've got more of course more the more you know the old gestalt rule of learning that the germans came up with that name the more you know the more you can learn the more you know the more you can learn and you begin to build upon your knowledge once you you discern what the foundation is and i don't want people to think roger that I'm a neophyte when it comes to masonry, and I don't want them to think that I haven't had experience with it since I was a little boy. I have had. I've had experience with um, masons. I've known a lot through my lifetime. I've 
I've uh, had experience in close relationships with uh, members of the Eastern Star. And in my little town, I grew up in a town, you know, where there's mining and where there's oil and gas, the secret societies proliferate. And that's a fact of American history. Huh. You go to the gold towns, the gold gold settlements, the gold camps out in California, and the biggest the biggest uh, building in the little town, many of them are still little towns, is the Masonic Lodge. And the reason for that, uh, and, and this discussion we had last time, of course, I grew up in a town that was an oil town. And when my family on one side came there, they came with what we called, everybody around there called the boom. And there were thousands and thousands of men living in tents up and down the dirt and gravel roads and in the woods. And they didn't have any place to stay. The town was little. And, uh, of course, the liquor was flowing pretty steady at that time because all the men in town and the one thing that was in town and all the old buildings, the oil boom is over. The oil wells are still there, but the boom was over a long time ago. But the old uh, secret lodges, the old buildings they built downtown, of course, downtown just a crossroads. It was never more than that. But the old lodges are all there. And uh, the Masonic Lodge is still one of the biggest and most uh, it's the most perpetual building in town. Other things have come and gone and buildings been tore down. That one, that one stays. And uh, my great granddad, who I knew well, and then my granddad winters, um, both of them, the lodge blackballed them. They couldn't get, they couldn't get the, the jobs they wanted as drillers. The drill, be a driller is top of the line in the oil field. It's a responsibility. Anybody can learn it, I suppose, but it's important. And it pays big money. And my granddad Winters didn't get a, he worked in oil field in time he was a little boy because right next to his house was the first oil well drilled in uh, Casey Township. And um, right, I mean, right out the back door in that well is still there, by the way. And, and the family, his father couldn't even write his own name. And next thing they know, it was kind of Beverly Hillbillies. They had money and they didn't know what to do with money. They'd never seen the darn stuff. And the checks were coming every month. And the stories uh, that are told and uh, that, that people tell, and the many tears that fell, as they say, are still a part of family history. But with that comes the lodges. And my granddad didn't, because the lodge, didn't get a drilling job in 1939. And he helped a fellow named Joe Claypool put, uh, he was a driller on putting the, 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 uh, the St. Elmo field in. They drilled that in, discovered it. And he did well after that. Dad, uh, my father, told me, of course, growing up in the 30s, uh, Dad said, I never even knew what money looked like. I never saw any money. Right. We had plenty to eat because we lived out. We butchered hogs and raised cattle and chickens, and we had gravy and milk cows, but we didn't have money. Well, the oil field changed that for people. But with the mining and minerals and oil and gas and all that come the lodges. And the reason for that is that uh, when the mining... Mining happens in a big way. Uh, that's a man's thing. They, mine, they they flock in to work in the mines. And they're there without their wives. They're there without other gals. There's a, you know, I talk about the founding of Marysville, California. When that town was founded, within eight days, they were trying to figure out what to name it. And it was nothing but a, a camp with tents. And there was one French whore in town. One French whore. And because they had no women around to try to be nice to, and men want to do that. I know women don't believe it, but it's the truth. It's deep inside of them to try to be nice to girls. They can't help it. Um, 
they put her up on a pedestal and took care of her and paid her her housing and made sure she had all the food she needed and they named the town after her. And I said this on the air not long ago and they named the town Murraysville. And Murraysville, California is a sister city to Yuba City, right where the Sacramento River and that other river up there come together. Still there. Somebody said, well, I would think if she was French, it would have been Maria. Well, maybe so. I don't know. what I wasn't there when it happened, but I do know they voted to name in her honor and take care of her, name the town after. But uh, the lodges were big then, as I'd said there. But uh, where we were, and I said, too, I should have said this, I was blackballed when I was in the armed forces because I wasn't a Mason. There were things I wanted to do, one particular thing, and because I wouldn't join, I wasn't going to get to do it. And I finally figured that out. And it's a quiet thing that Masons sometimes say, well, that's abuse. Some Masons will say that's abuse. And I'm sure it is. It's not intended to be that way. But when you're secret societies, that's what happens. They will, they will prefer other, others over, or their own over others when they shouldn't. Now, um, beyond that, I remember growing up, I had friends uh, that I grew up with, girls, they're in what they call Demolay. And the lodge in the town where I was was a big deal. You know, Demolay is connected to the Jesuits very strongly. Mm-hmm. And, and also the, the, the slaughter of thirty to 60,000 French Huguenots on St. Bartholomew's Day. Mm-hmm. And the Knights Templar. All of these are mixed up together. There's just no end to them. And they're all Babylonian. But uh, I appreciate Joe coming on and talking to us the way he did. That helped me. And, and I, other people learned from what he said and his willingness to discuss, answer questions. Well, I had an aunt. I don't know. We called her aunt. Now, where I come from, it's not aunt. It's aunt. Don't ask me why. I sound like a bug now to me. But back then, we didn't give it a thought. That's the way we said it. And uh, in my world, if uh, there was an elderly lady or an elderly man, it didn't make any difference whether they were related to you or not. If you knew them well, they were your aunt and your uncle. That was the world I grew up in. Well, just so happened this gal was, uh, uh, she was a a cousin to me from two directions, but shirt tail, as we say there. But um, her family was joined to the Douglases and the Winters. That was dad's side of the family. And uh, the guards on the others and the Brimners. And they all kind of came into that country at the same time across the Wabash and settled and built a church along the Cumberland Greenup Road there. And uh, until I, even when I was young, a lot of them lived right around there and uh, they hadn't gone very far. Well, they have some of them now, but there was, there were two, uh, Hazel, and we called her Aunt Hazel. We farmed her place and her mother's sister was Hattie Brimner, Hattie Brimner, H-A-D-D-I-E. Now, Aunt Hazel was close to her Aunt Hattie, closer than her mother. And I, I didn't know her mother, but I knew Aunt Hazel. Aunt Hazel about the same age as my granddad. Aunt Hazel was born in 1896 and Grandpa was born in 1897. They were close, too. And uh, uh, Hattie Brimner, her aunt, had uh, they had Christian sensibilities, but she decided, as we say, she was a widder woman, and she decided that she wanted to be a, a primitive Baptist. Now, a lot of people don't know what a primitive Baptist is, and there aren't that many of them around, but maybe to put it on the map, Abe Lincoln was a primitive Baptist in Kentucky and southern Indiana. 
he, he did away with that when he got older, but that's the way he was raised, by the way. There were a lot of them around. Now, at home, we didn't call them primitive Baptists, and there were quite a few, still are quite a few primitive Baptist churches around there. We call them hard-shelled Baptists. Now, where that came from, I need to look it up. I never thought about it till now, but we called them hard-shelled Baptists. Well, what were they? They were... They were double predestinarian. Uh, supralapsarianism is the theological term. Supralapsarianism, and it has nothing to do with Labrador retrievers. Some people think you're talking about dogs when you say supralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, and Labrador retrievers. Now, that's not it. It is a fancy Latin word that means double predestination. Well, what do I mean when I say that? And this was Aunt Hattie. She was one of those who was going to go all the way and figure it out and make things logical. What she said was this. So what she said, well, the Bible says that uh, God's people are predestined to be God's people, and there's no getting around it, and the Bible says that. Uh, before the foundation of the world, God chooses, chooses those whom eyes he will open. And he, know, he knows all things. There never was a time he didn't know all that could be known, and you can't teach him anything. If, he, if that's true, then he's not God. And uh, Aunt Hattie said, well, God obviously says in Romans clearly, lays it out there in a perfect crystal clear terms that uh, God predestines, he chooses, elects, that's the Greek word in the New Testament, eklektos, but the English word is choose out from among others. Now you say, well, I don't like that, and I don't even agree with it. Well, I can tell you, but just, i just give you a personal testimony. Uh, I've had my head in the Bible a long time, that's what it says. That's my conclusion, and I'm pretty sure of it. I, I can read, it's clear as crystal, I don't care how you cut it, that's what it says. But then Double predestination is where you say, well, if God has predestined uh, some people to, to life, then it stands to reason he didn't predestine others. If he didn't predestine others to life, then he predestined them to, destined them to hell and death. Is that logical? Well, of course it's logical. It's a matter of elimination. It has to be true as a matter of logic. Is it true? Well, those that oppose that say, well, but the Bible never says that. See, the question isn't what's logical, ultimately. The question is, what did God say? Because God's not obligated to explain anything he says. He is arbiter. That means his decisions are arbitrary. Arbitrary means he doesn't, he's not obliged to give reasons. The decisions of a jury are arbitrary. What does that mean? That means they're not obliged to give anybody a reason. They owe nobody nothing why they made the decision they made. Well, that's absolutely true as a matter of common law here in our own country, by the way. Well, but God, how much more so is God that way? He's not obliged to give any reason for what he says. But, of course, if he says it, and you got good evidence, that's the record of what he said, well, that ends the matter. There's no sense arguing about it anymore. All the logic in the world ain't going to make any difference because he's God and he decrees and he's not to be judged according to our standards. He's above us. He's not He's not like us. He's uh, His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. His mind is above our mind. We cannot understand everything he knows or understands. And if we could, we could tell him to scoot himself out of the way and we'll get in the throne of the universe with him. But that ain't going to happen. So um, Aunt Hattie was a double predestinarian, hard-shelled Baptist. Now, I went to church uh, with Aunt Hazel uh, when I was younger because I like to go to church and I was interested in what it was. And uh, I found out that was the case. Uh, I'm not again those people. Uh, they carry Christian sensibilities. But, of course, we all have things that other people don't accept. Well, but Aunt Hattie and Hazel were ardent members of 
of um, Eastern Star. Now, one of the ladies last week said, well, um, I'm not a, I'm not a man, so I can't be in, uh, what was it, uh, in the Masons. I don't have any part in the Masons. Well, you're, that's really true. I want to hedge what I said last time. I said, that's not true. You can belong to the Eastern Star. Well, the Eastern Star is just there to satisfy the sensibilities of women because they want to belong to something too. So they came up with that idea, Eastern Star. And uh, then the Masons, that's a purely man thing. You know, isn't it funny, Roger? I think this is fascinating. The Roman Church gets a pass when it comes to them not ordaining women. Nobody complains about the Roman Church not ordaining women. Uh, not many people complain about Judaism not ordaining women to rabbi positions either. Oh, some do, but not many. Uh, nobody complains about the, and says, well, these people are male chauvinist pigs, these masons, because they don't let girls into their organization. You know, the Rotary Club, they, they gave in to that. They, uh, all these other civic groups, you can count them. They, all the girls now say, we want in there, and it's wrong for you to, and all on they go. Well, the masons, nobody says anything about them. Why do they get a pass? I'll, I'll leave that up to your sensibilities and uh, conclusions, but they do get a pass. But the Eastern Star is the organization for the girls, and the Demole is the organization for the younger girls. Now, again, I can just report what I know. I grew up in a relatively, well, I grew, I didn't grow up in any town, but the town where I went to high school uh, was a relatively small town, and that was the town that was the center of the oil boom when it came. And all the people were there and the lodges, they had the money was flowing, of course. And so mm-hmm. the men got together and they built lodges. Why did they get together and build lodges? Well, they didn't have their, there weren't that many women around and at the first. And men, when there aren't women around, what do they do? Well, they congregate together in groups. So I've been in that situation before for a long time. Military services, well, they used to be like that until they started bringing the girls into the units, it's uh, really upset the apple cart quite a bit. You say, that's good? No, that's not good. No. Uh, what happens is the girls just make a, a lot of girls make a lot of money selling themselves. Then the men get to fighting over the girls, and the, the girls love that. And that doesn't work well in combat situations, friends. And if you know anything about how what's been going on in our military services, you'll understand that. It's uh, very detrimental to the ability of men to do their job. What's their job? To destroy the enemy. Very, very detrimental. And it's hard on women, and it abuses women. The Navy ships are a good proof of that. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it is ugly, friends. Every 15 minutes, according to the latest statistics, every 15 minutes, a girl in the armed forces of the United States is impregnated outside of wedlock. Mm. What would you expect? That's what, that's what people do when they're crowded up like that, and that's why our military service haven't traditionally. We've never, five thousand, oh, shoot. Four or 5,000 years, Roger, however long it's been. That's the way it's been. Yeah. We don't do that because it doesn't work. <laughs> it flat doesn't work. You talk about logic, well, forget logic. It doesn't work. That's what I say when God says, and the Bible says that. It is when the God speaks, well, let's listen to what he's saying. Well, back to the Well, Mason. as you said, the men go to war to protect women and children back home. Well, uh, what are you doing one. bringing them up to the front line? Yeah, then men don't have a reason anymore, and it, it won't work. You say, oh, other people, the Israelis do it. No, the Israelis never do it. They just promote the idea. They don't They don't put women out there like that. And I'll tell you something else. When they first did put women, women out in the front because they're godless and they hate the Bible, they put women out front. The Arabs were delighted in slaughtering women. He said, you're going to put women up? It's like Larry Bird, he used to say, Larry Bird, you know, he the trash talker par excellence. He'd get out on the basketball court and uh, – of course, a lot of black guys on the teams, you know, mm. and they put a white guy to guard Larry Bird, some white guy. 
And he would walk over to the coach on the other team right on the right during the game said, I can't believe you don't have any more respect for me than to put a white guy guarding me. I mean, that's all you think about me that you put a white <laughs> guy on. <me. laughs> uh, so they get talking back and forth about who's the best. Of course, the black guys thought when they first heard about Larry Bird, they said, this guy can't be worth anything. He's a white boy. White boys can't jump. That's I've heard black guys say that about Larry Bird. Of course. Then when they went up against him, they said, well, wait a minute, there's something going on here. I don't understand. Yeah. Mer- Merovich too. Yeah. Merovich too. <laughs> well, at any rate, no, <laughs> uh, back to the subject. So the men get together in places. That's why I say it's, it is very prevalent, not, it's everywhere else too, but it's very prevalent where men were moving into uninhabited areas and they were mining and uh, drilling oil wells. It became uh, the, the secret societies proliferated and that's what happened where I'm from. That's why I say I'm not a neophyte about this. I know a lot about it. One time I, my aunt Hazel, God rest her soul, she lived to be 101 and she lit, she was born in the house where she died. Oh, wow. You believe that? Yeah. And she didn't never married, never married had two brothers i just found the other day i've got it right here i'm looking at it one of the her brothers they came back from world war one and one of them always go around uh drive around the countryside to all the children at christmas time with a santa claus suit on and a bell and he'd ring that bell as he like those old school bells where you'd hold them in your hand and go up and down and mm-hmm. we'd listen on christmas eve for rex guard that was hazel's brother and he'd bring us a little tiny toy or something, you know, he'd, and he did that to all the children or all around. But one time Hazel, of course we farmed her place and dad, uh, he started farming aunt Hattie's place. When he came back from the war, he was 19 years old. Dad was young when he went too young actually, but he came back at 19 and his mother and father, my grandparents had made an arrangement with Hattie Brimner that when he came back, he'd farm her 40 acres. Well, that's how he got started farming. Then, of course, it was on a two-fifths, three-fifths share crop arrangement, which was the custom around there. But Hattie, Hattie, then when she passed away years later, she made sure that, uh, well, Dad got the first crack at the 40 acres. Roger, I remember he paid $500 an acre for that. That was all good farmland. There was no, it was all tillable. All, it was a solid square quarter mile. It was all good. And uh, he paid $500 an acre and people told him, don't do it. That's too much. You'll never be able to pay for it. And now that ground and ground all around there is selling from anywhere from $8,000 an acre to 15. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it, it's worth a, worth a lot on, and on that, on that level. But, um, um, I, Aunt Hazel, she was like her aunt Hattie Brimner and she was a member of the Eastern star. And when I was, my brother and I were little, she came to dad and said, Junior, uh, I called him Junior before Grandpa passed away because he was named after his dad. Would you uh, let your boys participate in the ceremony? I'm going to be instituted. She's a very proper woman, so was Aunt Hattie. She was school teacher. That's why uh, I'm going to be. Uh, I think the word was instituted, some fancy word like that, as Grand Matron of the Eastern Star. Well, that was a big deal to her. Well. I didn't know it was a big deal. And, and uh, dad said, well, sure. Aunt Hazel, we liked Aunt Hazel. She took care of us when dad was farming. When we were little, she'd take us out in the field and we'd pick up rocks and throw them up uh, in piles to get them out of the field and horseshoes, whatever else we could find. And, uh, and she'd cook for us and take care of us. And she'd feed us 
Oh, she fed us good. But we, we did that ceremony. And then one time I was in town and I don't remember what the situation was, but the Ku Klux Klan was big at one time too. Now people that it was big, real big. It wasn't big when I was growing up, but before my time, it was real big. And it was just another, it was just another secret organization. And what the Ku Klux Klan in the oil fields in the Midwest, the ones I knew about, they took over the legislature of the state of Indiana uh, as a political party. They also took over the legislature of the state of Colorado. Is this, a, this after World War One, right? Right around right, that time? Right, right, in the 20s and well, 30s. That, this when Woodrow Wilson played uh, Birth of a Nation in the White House. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, they... Um, it wasn't, um, their, their purpose at that time, what they were against at that time was prostitution, illegal liquor. And, uh, that was the two main things. Prostitution. The clan? Huh? What? The clan was, that's what they the were clan. against. Yeah, that was, and, uh, I, without naming names, I knew men that belonged to the clan, uh, when they were active, when they were younger. And my grandmother told me that they're all gone now. Uh, gone that when she went the method of the big you know the, in little town you got your Methodist church in the Midwest it's just a culture you got your Methodist church you got your Baptist, Southern Baptist church and your Southern Presbyterian church and for some reason around there the, there were no Northern Presbyterians and Baptists as they call them it was Southern Presbyterians and, and Southern Baptist and those were pretty much oh Church of, Church of Christ Church of Christ yeah they were there but. There was those churches, they would compete, try to build the biggest buildings, and, of course, have the greatest influence, very clannish. And uh, then also, um, they were, of course, nice people. Now, here's what I think happened. Now, my gr- grandmother, for instance, told me when she was 14, 15, she would hire out to women that had oil money, and they would, people in the drill and business stuff, and she'd help, help them take care of the little babies when they were born. And uh, that's what young girls, teenage girls do. And she'd go to church with them. Well, some of them were the big wheels. They went to the big church. And the Methodist church gained the ascendancy ascendancy in our little town. And it was a big church. That church had a pipe organ, for crying out loud. When I think about it now, it seemed big at the time, but it really was a very mm-hmm. small building. But uh, she said, we go to church. And I go with the family. And right while the preacher was up there in the middle of his fighting bumblebees, like preachers sometimes do, um, and uh, everything, everybody turned around and look, and here come the clan walking down the aisle in their hoods. You know, you couldn't see their faces. Really? Oh, yeah. They'd walk down the aisle, one aisle on the on the south side. There were two aisles at that church, south and north, and they'd walk down the south aisle. They'd file in front of the mourner's bench, we called it. That's where you, you fell down and prayed when they gave the invitation. They filed in front of the mourner's bench, and each one of them would throw a, a bag of money, a little bag of money on the mourner's bench as they filed by. And then they turn, they go up the north aisle, and they'd walk out the back. And the preacher would stop preaching until they let up on performances, as they say, until they were done. And then he'd commence to preaching again. Now, what they want? Now, Brent, Brent, hold. You witnessed that? No, no, no. Let, let me say again. Be careful. The evidence is my grandmother told me this story. Okay, okay. That was, see, the clan was powerful after World War One before. Mm-hmm reaching its pinnacle in that part of the world. In the Wabash Valley, as I said, they captured the legislature of the state of Indiana as a political party. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the 30s, they were strong. Then they began to wane when World War II came. Uh, the focus was gone. But what they were against in the oil field, boom towns, and mining towns, 
And I saw the same thing in Nevada, by the way, those towns out there and the history of those towns where I worked when I was in the mining business. Um, what they were against was prostitution. You know, the hookers or the pimps, I should say. I don't want to blame the girls as much as the pimps. The pimps followed the men when they went to um, uh, mining boom towns, where they're, whether they were mining or, or drilling oil and gas. They would follow them, and they would try to get that money into their hands. There was a lot of gambling. They were against gambling, prostitution, and illegal liquor because they saw that it w- they would come into a community, and that's what would destroy families people or the temptation is too great and uh gambling too in that little town where i was it's some of those towns around there still have porches you know it's a crossroads they're building downtown and the ta- the buildings have porches and the and the second story and my granddad had come there to put in the rod lines in an oil field back then they the, there was no electricity so the oil pumps operated on uh one longer gas motors or a powerhouse with a giant one longer motor that was uh, had a, a piston that was four foot across, and once you get and it would run on natural gas, so it didn't cost anything to run it. And once that thing got going and that six foot iron flywheel got to fly in, then they'd attach these rod lines, they're sixteen and a half foot long, and screw them together with brass couplings. That's the stuff that goes down the well. But they took those and made rod lines to go out to every well within two or three miles within a mile and a half probably of that. And if you had a hundred wells and around there with those uh, pools, the wells were thick and there was no regulation, no regulation. Mm -hmm. You could drill them right right into each other back in those days and run the salt water down over the hill. Well, he was hired uh, by an outfit. He'd put a field in, in Ohio. This was the Dutch side of the family. And he knew how to do that. What he was, was uh, an engineer, but he wasn't educated as such. And they, he came in to put in the rod line system for a fellow there and what, around the Siggins, what they called the Siggins pool. That was the fellow that owned the land. And it, that was the most, most valuable piece of real estate in the state at one time. So much oil came out of that Siggins pool. And it was only, that pool was only 500 feet deep and less. Amazing. Mm. It didn't cost much to go down by comparison. <laughs> We're having to go deeper now, but. My grandpa. They go, they go thousand, ten thousand feet and more, don't they? These oh, days? Yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, and the, the uh, rod lines are made of different material. They're lighter weight, they're short, all that stuff. But these uh-huh. rod lines were solid steel, some of the best steel you could get, three eighths of an inch around. We used to make cattle gates out of it indestructible of course impossible to carry unless you had <laughs> two or three men i i learned how to weld welding together shackle rods from the oil field and making gates for hogs and cattle and we had a lot of shackles once they're wore out nobody's going to use them again you can't take a chance but shackle rod uh, is used a lot maybe it has a weakness you can't take a chance of that thing breaking and having hundreds of feet of that stuff down in there you got to fish out it costs right more. It's a hassle. Well, um, my granddad came from from up uh, in the corner of Michigan, <clears throat> from a, off a tulip farm. If you can believe that, <laughs> of course he could make money in the oil field, and he came there for that purpose. As did a lot of other people. He was never he was never a part of the lodges, but he was blackballed by the lodges. That's the point I made a while ago. That's one of them. the other granddad was my granddad Winters. He was blackballed from being driller. Uh, blackballed in the oil field because he wasn't a member of the right lodge. That's what I'm trying to say. Now I've, I've got it straight. Well, um, 
when men get together and there aren't any women around and the Ku Klux Klan demonstrates this, this is the way it was. Did those men go to church? No, they didn't go to the Methodist church. Their wives went. They didn't. Well, what did they do? Well, they joined the Klan. They didn't want to go to the church and hear some effeminate preacher talk about morality. Men don't want to hear that. Men are not wired to listen to that. And if they do, well, they're giving up their manhood. That's what they're doing. That's not what Christianity is, but that's what it devolves into. And Methodism has been worse than most in that way. So they said, this is ridiculous. I don't want prostitution. I don't want pimps. I don't want illegal liquor. I don't want gambling. But going to church, I can't stand. So their wives went to church and the Ku Klux and the men that didn't want to follow their wives to church that way and let the women and the effeminate preacher run things. Now, this is a general a generalization. I know that. But I have to come to an overall conclusion about why these things concur. I've thought about it a lot. I grew up with it. And I've seen it all over the country. And I was in the mining fields out west. I saw the same thing. Men say, I want to belong to an organization where I can have camaraderie with men. And I, and I, I don't get it here. This is silliness. Men don't want silliness. They want to be men. They want to do something worthwhile. They want to protect their families and the churches. I call it Christodom. It's Judeo-Christianity. Judeo-Christianity. What does that mean? That means it's effeminate. That's what it means. What is effeminism? Let's get right down to the bottom line. What is effeminism? Effeminism is not being light in the loafers. That's not the biblical definition. It's not being light in the loafers and limp-wristed. That's not effeminism. What is, that's a, a characteristic that can come about, but that's not the problem. That's the symptom. What's the problem? How does it start? It starts with men who follow women. That's how it starts. The Bible is clear as crystal on that. And the judgment of a nation is when men, when women, oh, Roger, you know the verse, Isaiah, I do. Isaiah 3.12. The, the I, I lived it. In Argentina, I lived that verse. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Oh, and you, you can tell us about that, of course, anytime you want. I'm just jabbering. But I came Well, to- uh, yeah, Christina Kirshner, she served two terms down there, took over right. after her husband. He's the one that stabilized the country after the bankruptcy in 01. There was like seven presidents in three weeks. And uh-huh. the, Nestor Kirshner came in and stabilized it. And him and her were both senators, I believe. And when he died, she took over, and then she was elected for two terms. First thing she did was go and give every school child in the country one of those 10-inch portable computers. Uh-huh. And then she tried to get a, a pass a law where 16-year-olds could vote. Yeah, of course. Went out and had had an app made for cell phones where if you went in, of course, there's rampant inflation, as there always is down there. Um, And uh, if you went into a store and saw a high price, you could take a picture with your cell phone and send it straight to the government so they could get the evil retailer for pricing his goods too high and and being too greedy. Or Women will rule over you, and children will be your oppressors. The judgment of God and men that they resist the feminization of Christianity. I used to say, and I've been around this a lot too. Why do black men? Why has there been a plethora of black men joining Islam? Their answer is easy, because Christianity did not offer to them a reaffirmation, an affirmation of their masculinity. Why did they join gangs? Same reason, a reaffirmation of their masculinity. Why did they join Islam? Islam is a masculine approach. Is Christianity? You better believe it is, but there's a difference and a big difference. But it, but Islam 
They, they look at Christianity and say, this is silly. I'm not going to be a part of this. This is Judeo. When I say Judeo, friends, I mean effeminate. That's what all false religion is, a perversion of sex. Now, you say, Brent, that's all cult. No, that's not cultural. I go right back to the Garden of Eden before culture even had a time to develop. And what God, did God say to our grandpa? He said, well, the reason that I'm cursing the ground is because, you go back and read it, see what your conclusion is. He says it point blank, because you followed your woman. Now, that Hebrew word there is isha. It's a woman or wife, the same thing. It depends upon the context. That's why in the English-speaking world, we talk about a man and his woman. A man and his woman, uh, because of our influence of the Bible and our culture. A woman is becomes a wife. The word means, um, woman, of course, means the man with the womb. Even in our Anglo-Saxon, we distinguish the woman by her anatomy. That's a good way to do it because it's so blatantly obvious. But because you followed your wife, these things happened. And here's the important point that I stress over and over and over again about this problem. We see it all around us. Uh, but I want to stress, men are responsible. Men will answer to God for this, and it's ugly. The women will not answer. Go back and read the account in Genesis when it happened. Uh, Pandora's box is a is a Greek religion. Their, their religious point of view, that all trouble comes from the woman. That's not what God says. No, all trouble comes from the man. Further, furthermore, the man is one that carries the seed of sin. The seed of sin, and he gives it to all his children, male and female, but the womb of the woman, according to the Bible, does not have the capacity to pass that, that sin nature along. No, it's the seed of the man in the woman that passes along the sin nature. Therefore, uh, Rome is silly to say that there's such a thing as an immaculate conception of Mary. They're trying to get around that. They don't know how to get around that. Well, if they just look at the Bible, they wouldn't have to come up with these silly doctrines that present more questions than they ask. Mary, Mary was born immaculately. No, no, no. Mary is a woman. Mary received the sin nature from her father. Mary was a sinner, conceived in sin like the rest of us. But the Bible teaches that it is the seed, the sperma, to put it in the Greek word of the New Testament, sperm, of the man that carries the sin principle. Uh, that's, I'm in good company when I say that. That goes clear back to the writings of Augustine and the Bishop of Hippo in the 4th century. He noticed that in the Bible, and he's the first one to write a lot about it. But it's all there. The Bible's got it all there. And the bottom line is that <clears throat> men and women are of equal dignity. Equal dignity. Men are the problem. That's why we're teaching this militia class, and I'm pointing out it came to the surface last class in a good way. I'm glad it did, because the the federal law of the militia, the Congress's statute, says the militia consists of males, not females. Why? Well, it's only been uh, since the beginning of mankind we've said that. Do you think there's something wrong with it? No, there isn't anything wrong with it. And God says it in the Bible, uh, People with Christian sensibilities, like those who have gone before us in America, have seen that until my lifetime. And even now, women aren't subject to the draft, and they're not supposed to, by law, be subject to catching bullets and shrapnel. But getting back to the problem of manhood, men, the way God made them, demand a rite of passage, a rite of passage in the manhood. Women don't do that. They don't have to. Women are what they are. God made them to understand that, and they flow with it. But men, my friends, men, 
in a different way, have to prove themselves in every culture. That's, that is done. All the pagan cultures do it too, because it's the nature of men to have to have that. I remember reading, Roger, maybe you've heard of these fellows in Papua New Guinea that dive off 100-foot towers head first. Have you? Oh, yeah, right. They don't dive into the water. They dive on the land. Uh-huh. And they attach those uh, vines the, to the feet. They, they were the, the progenitors of bungee jumping. Yeah, but they didn't have the bungee. They used vines, and so when they— right. And they, the vines are just long enough that just before their head hits the ground, bam, it catches them. And the boys are trained from the time they're little. They stand on their father's shoulders, and they jump, and he catches them and gives them a jerk, trying to strengthen those joints because he knows that the rite of passage for them is to have the, have the kahunis to jump off a 100-foot tower head first and trust. Trust the vines that are attached to your ankle and know how to crunch your legs up close to your body and tighten your muscles so it cushions that that sudden stop. And it's that jolt. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it the Sioux have the sun dance? The women don't oh, do yeah. that. The men do that. They dance around. They stare at the sun. They don't eat for days until they go into a trance. It's all paganism, worship of the sun. But still, they recognize that. There has to be a rite of passage for their boys to be men where they know now I'm a man. Men, all little boys, and you guys are listening to me know this. You you wanted to be a man when you're a boy, and you didn't always know how to do it. I remember I was in church one time, Roger, little country church, white oak down there sitting on the front row. And, and the men, and where I went to church, a little tiny church building, an old building, the men sat on one side of the aisle, and the women sat on the other. We didn't have several rooms. We just had one room. We didn't talk about it, just the way it was. Sometimes I'd sit with my, the large ladies in print dresses on where the, my grandma's, and on the other one side, when I was a little boy, sometimes I'd sit with my grandpa's on the other side, depending upon uh, what I thought I wanted to do and how bored I might be. But it was separated. And one time after church, uh, one of my shirt tail cousins, who was much older than me, my grandma's sister, was sitting on the piano bench because she was the piano player. And uh, she, you know, we're just sitting there waiting for somebody to start singing. And she'd, when the song leader would start singing, she'd start playing, you know. And, and uh, they were saying, well, there's a, a, this kind of a meeting. The men are going to get together and they're going to cut down this tree out here that's in the way in the parking lot that died. I remember that one time. And, and I was 14 years old, sitting on the front bench or the front pew of the church. And they named off the men that, were, that they wanted to show up. And, uh, Norma, her name was Norma, my grandma's first cousin. She she looked over at me and she she piped up real loud and said, "Well, what about Brent? Brent's a man, ain't he?" Well, I was fourteen years old. Nobody ever called me a man before. Brent's a man, isn't he? What about him? Oh, they said, "Oh, okay, okay, we'll put Brent on there." You know, so I'd come. They wanted me to come help cut down that that giant tree and work it up. See, I never forgot that, Roger. I'm still talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a big deal to me at the time that Norma said that. I've never forgotten it. Norma was a wise woman. She knew that little boys had to be made to feel like men, and you should start young with them and start calling them men and, and start treating them like men and, li and listening to them and thinking they have the ability to discern things because they're the ones that are supposed to make discerning decisions someday, be members of the militia, etc. serve on the jury. That's the way our culture was until very recently. The whole public office, Roger, men in America, young men, are not even going to school, don't even want to anymore. Mm -hmm. 
the women have got it. I'm going hunting. And I know boys that live to go hunting, go coon hunting, go deer hunting. They want to go fishing. They're not even remotely interested in public affairs at all at church or anywhere else. But men join the Masons and the secret societies for that reason. It's a man thing. And then the women say, oh, I want to do that well, too. For a different reason, they join the Eastern Star. Back to you. Well, you know, Joe said that the reason he joined at that or in his 20s was to take care of w- w- widows and orphans of, of other Masons. That was his motivation. Uh, I wanted to remind you, you know, you're talking about coming-of-age ceremonies. Down here in these cultures, they have that for females. Well, have I you ever talked about that before? Oh, yeah, and they have it in New Orleans because of the Roman Catholic influence there. It's Could called uh, a coming out, right? Well, it's a, in, in Spanish, it's quince cumpleaños, which means 15th birthday. Mm-hmm. And it's when they turn 15 on their 15th birthday. And, I mean, families save up for years to put those things on for their daughters. Yep. And I've seen them uh, a couple of times. You're driving around all the young, that, excuse me, that age group, and they're all out uh, in the street and dumping stuff on each other and whatever the ceremony is, I don't know. But I know it's a big deal in this culture down here. But the distinction, I'm glad you brought that up, Roger. The distinction is the girl just, it's, in the French, it's a word that means coming out. And they have a big deal, and they have a big ceremony, and all the attention is given to the girl. She has a new dress, but it's the girl doesn't have to do anything. She just no. is. She is what she I, is. I'm they just celebrate. They celebrate her coming of age, becoming yeah. fertile, or whatever that represents. But the men, they have to do something. See, they have to prove themselves. And right. Joe, ahead. Joe, what you got, bud? Well, I was out of the pickup when you were talking. You, Maxine said Joe said, or you said Joe said what? That you uh, joined the Masons to help protect the women's and or and and children of deceased Masons is what I remember you saying last week. Wives, widows, and orphans. Yeah. And, Wives, uh, widows, is, and orphans. And, and James, if I may, I'd like. Go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. Not to go down another trail, but before I get moved away from here, uh, I'd like to make a comment about a statement that I made last week, and that's about the first three degrees, and they are not done simultaneously. They are done on three different occasions. Uh And I'll I'll leave it at that, but I just wanted to correct that error. All right. Joe, we really appreciate it. I agree with that. I know Brent got a lot of reaction, and I got a couple of emails on it, and everybody was so grateful for you for your uh, forthrightness and answering those questions and giving us some insights into things that are kind of mysterious to a lot of people. I think they impute a lot of, of stuff into that that's not right, but so be it, you know. Uh, but I appreciate you uh, opening up for us last week with Brent on that. And that's why, too, Roger, I continued the discussion because I sensed that that uh, folk really wanted to hear about it. And so uh, it, it started something that is of great interest to people. And I believe, of course, we say, well, religion and politics. Now, we've had some disagreement about whether masonry is religion. No, masonry is religion. Now, if there's disagreement, uh, people can say what they want, I suppose. But Albert Pike says, Albert Pike 
in his his big fat cinder block looking book, he says it is religion. Well, what is religion? Then you have to ask yourself, what is religion? Well, the Supreme Court of the United States has tried to define it, and they've said, for example, religion uh, is that uh, endeavor that goes to the the fundamental questions of human existence. Well, that's just one weak way to put it. Religion is easy to define if you go to the Word and you go to the Bible. The Word, there is a Word, there is a place in the Bible that says, James the Apostle in the book of James says, religion, uh, pure and undefiled religion is this. This goes along with Joe, to care for orphans and widows. Well, why does he say that? He says that because the law in the Old Testament says it. That's why. If there's anybody that gets a break, gets a break in our in our Christian understanding of reality, it is orphans and widows. And God said, you better be careful with them if they're husbandless and fatherless. That's really what those words mean. The Hebrew word of the Old Testament and the Greek word of the Newer Testament means husbandless and fatherless. It doesn't mean motherless, amazingly. And that's an important distinction. But um, if a if a woman is by herself, she doesn't have a husband. And there, by the way, there are no uh, provisos given. Well, she uh, she divorced her husband, or nobody wants to live with her. She's crazier than a loon. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that. It just says husbandless and fatherless, and we're to be careful with those folk because God says, "I am their protector." You better not mess with them. You know, if you have a husband, you've got a protector. If you've got a father, you've got a protector. But if you have neither. You've got, you've got uh, God. God promises He will be your protector. That's no small matter. And therefore, if I don't want to get in His way and I don't want to um, try to impede His protection, because He'll squash me like a bug. That's what the Bible says. So that's a good thing, of course. But coming back to the Masons, uh, real quickly, in the secret societies, that's what I see in them. And whose fault is that? Why is it that they join them and they hate the churches? It's only natural that they would. They are Judeo-Christian. They are Romanist. If there's anything effeminate, it's Romanism. All the, the Church of Rome is the priesthood. It's not anybody else, according to their doctrine. And clearly, they suffer from massive effeminacy to the point of pedophilia. It's rampant, and it always has been. For centuries, my friends, that's nothing new. You tell men they can't get married, what are they going to do? They can't, they can't have a woman. What are they going to do? Well, they'll do a lot of weird things. That's what they'll do. That's why you shouldn't say that. That's why you shouldn't throw people in jail. Men. The Bible doesn't say you can do that. Do you think you can get away with it? No, it's going to make it worse, much worse. Oh, there are other, other ways to handle that, and the Bible talks about that too. But who's talking about that? Who's even looking? Who even care? Who's even caring? No, they want to do it logically. They want to say, well, but this and that, and let's have these arguments about what the punishment ought to be. Why don't you just do what the Bible says and shut up? It works. That's what our, the people that started our country, that's what they did. They said, we don't need any legislation. We got legislation. God has given it to us. That's what mm-hmm. they did in England. It worked well there. They became powerful, powerful, powerful nation. Produ- productive, powerful. Well, we have too. And as long as we have Christian sensibilities about us, it's part of our common law tradition to do that. Matter of fact, it is our common law tradition to do that. Well, you can see as we get divorced from that, the the uh, the travesties, the decadence, the uh, rampant crime, the immorality. The it's just it's repulsive. It's it's over the top. So what are we going to do? Keep going along like like we've been going along? Try to figure it out? 
it hadn't worked for a long time, friends, and it is true. It's instinctive. When a people find themselves in a crisis, they instinctively turn their eyes toward their origins and look there for a sign. Look there for a sign. We've got more response, Roger, to this militia class than we've got from any other law class that we've taught. Mm-hmm. Sheriff, Sheriff Leaf and I teaching this class, hundreds of participants. And of course, the, it was a wake up. Well, Texas was a wake up call. It still is. Right. And if you want to, to solve a problem, the only remedy problems are lawlessness. The only remedy to lawlessness is, is lawfulness. Yeah, what lawfulness? Right, that's right, Roger. That's, there is no other remedy. There never has been. Now, the law will not save you from hell. No, 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 no. You can't be a good little boy or girl by following some rules and expect to be commended to God. No, God has already done that. He commended oh. His people to Himself by taking on the form of human flesh and dying for their lawlessness, paying the penalty, the capital penalty, the infinite nature of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh reduced to the span of a man. He paid the penalty for all of his people. That's out of the way. Now now that that's out of the way, he says, now you have the option of enjoying your Christian life, of enjoying your new birth, your new life. What? How do you get that enjoyment? Pray tell. Oh, well, you just simply do what I tell you to do. That's what you do. Yeah, I'm telling you what to do. I made you. I know what's good for you. I tell you what to do. And your enjoyment, your enjoyment comes when you learn my law, that's my will, the will of God. You learn, you, uh, you protect it. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. You will end up doing it, and then the enjoyment will start coming. So get started, friends. Don't wait. And I hope you have the gumption to follow through. If God hasn't given you the gumption, you won't follow through. What is the gumption? It is the gumption breath of God, the spirit, the person of the spirit of God. I like to translate that word gumption. We used to sing when we were boys, give me unction in my gumption. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that word from when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. Unction's an old word. Good old word. What it means is, uh, unction means an anointing. It is the word that means to pour oil on, to pour oil on and oil is the symbol of the spirit of God, according to God's word. And uh, Um, we need unction in our gumption. We're about to lose Chicago. Yep, we're about to lose Chicago, Boy, and they're the they're the ones that they're the ones that need to hear this. Go ahead, Paul. Absolutely, um, Chicago. If you want to follow us into the second hour, please go to expose You can find the links for uh, the other platforms that you can hear us on. Uh, otherwise, you can go to expose or you can go to commonlawyer.com and check out uh, excellence of the common law, comparing and contrasting the law of the city with the uh, law of nature, law of nature and nature's god, uh, whatever. Um, commonlawyer.com go there check out the militia course as well sign up for that uh, and above all keep your head down 106.9 WBOU FM Chicago we love you have a great day uh, thank you uh, Brent yeah. I'm deviate okay. just a minute have you heard about what's going on with George Soros and the audacity this week no what happened they're uh, the second largest uh, conglomerate radio station owners behind iHeart 
is this, I think it might have used to have been Cumulus. There's been a couple of these operations yeah. that went in and bought all these stations since yeah. Newt Gingrich stabbed us in the back there when you were running and put the contract on America. And in that lame duck session, uh, when they passed NAFTA, I believe, they also uh, deregulated the media. You remember that? Yes, I do. That was, that was Newt Gingrich did that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for the audience, um, used to be when, uh, because of regulation and, and uh, competitive rules, when radio first started and the FCC got uh, established in 34, as they went forward, they had a, uh, was it 7, 7, and 7. Uh, anybody could own 7 AM, 7 FMs, and 7 TV stations, and you, but you couldn't own them in the same market unless it was AM, FM combo. There's a couple of exceptions to that for, for the Cox family. Uh, but then it went on, and they in the 60s, I believe, they changed it to 12, 12, and 12. Uh, and that's where some of the big chains like RKO and stuff, and they had seven and 12 of the big stations around the country, Memphis, LA, Dallas, etc. Um, and then Newt Gingrich came along and deregulated it where they can own as many as they want. Okay. Well, obviously all, see, that was when I was in the record business that affected us because that that way there was a bunch of different stations of different ownership after the newt gingrich thing you only had to go to one guy to service all those stations and he better like you you know and uh so uh that has continued to grow with these people can have mass ownership of these stations and whatever this second one was if it was cumulus or whatever it's now called audacity and i heard a black gal from st louis very conservative very sharp black gal being interviewed the other day on this and she works at one of those stations they purchased in st louis one of them you'll be familiar with the one we're kind of centers around is kmox brent which i would imagine you listen to a lot because that spreads over wls and kmox is a huge coverage station out of st louis well they said that a young couple with very wealthy came in and bought this company audacity of these really primo 200 primo stations around the country the big talk stations many of them and uh, in st louis it was this fm that was fm talk and kmox and they bought both of those and they moved them into the same building and then instead of going in and accentuating the talent and what the programming was they started concentrating on oh we don't use plastic utensils in our in our break room anymore and oh you can't use this in the break room you can't have that no sugar they had to hide the sugar and all this kind of crap well with that kind of a viewpoint and accentuation those stations went down and now this group of stations lost 400 million dollars last year and now mr soros has come in and bought them okay so uh probably a lot of the backbone of the what's left of the radio media is going to be affected by this evidently they had the jewels of the country in there i don't know the other ones i just know those two because this gal was working at one of them there in, in st louis and experienced all this but uh but that's going on right now so our podcasts and our internet radio presence is going to be a lot more important as we go forward and people that did listen to those outlets start leaving those and looking for another place for truth and we're probably going to pick up some listeners off of that along with all the other good uh, alt media podcasts that are out there well so that's that's yeah, happened 
you remember what Rhett Butler said. There, there's two times a fellow can make money. And for two circumstances, number one, when empires rise, number two, when empires fall. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter make any difference whether the things are going up or down. There's opportunity and God makes it that way. And well, sure. he enjoys watching the struggle. I imagine. I just like the stock market. You make money on the long or you make money on the short. Yeah. Um, Brent, I sent you a video last night that I stumbled on with E. Raymond capped, and I wanted to, because we were searching for this a week or two ago with the book Jacob's Scepter and Jacob's Birthright, and I can't remember the exact title, and that was E. Raymond Cap that wrote that. And uh, I found a a very interesting video. It's kind of dated. You can tell it's an old film, kind of not great quality, but it's E. Raymond Captain, another gal, and they were going over the history of Christianity in England. Did you did get a chance to watch that yet or not? No, I didn't, Roger. I'm just overcome, but I want, I know who he is. I've listened to him before and I do want to watch it, but I want you to talk about it because I've, read his stuff and listened to him enough that I think I could probably think halfway into whatever you're talking about here. Well, you'll be much more familiar with some of the names and stuff he goes over, no doubt, but it's a really complete history that goes back to Joseph of Arimathea, who was Jesus's uncle, right? And and it was was a very successful uh, uh, merchant and and had uh, association with the tin mines in southeast England down there, Cornwall, I think. And uh, they went over how it was originally it was all more or less Protestant and not Catholics and how the Catholics came in and invaded that and tried to change it. And Mary queen of Scots did some stuff and uh, you'll just have to watch it. i tell you what, I can go back for the audience today if you'd like to see it. Cause it's very interesting. Uh, I'll put it on the uh, uh, show links today on the end of today's show description. Oh. Uh, and I'm sorry you had not had a chance to watch it yet. And I'd like to hear your comments on it after you uh-huh. have, but it's very good. It goes all the way back to the earliest, earliest Christianity in England and brings it all forward from that. And E. Raymond Capp's a pretty good historian. Well, I was trying to look here real quick how long the thing is. Cause I, it's about an hour maybe. Yeah. It's an hour long. Now, um, Capt is good because he digs in to the history of Christianity in England. Now, if you don't understand, if you don't know anything about the sweep and the flow, you don't have to be an expert, but if you don't know the sweep and the flow of Christianity in England, you don't have a clue who you are as an American. It's that true. And if you don't have a, 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 a handle on the sweep and the flow of Christianity, period, in Europe, you're hamstrung that that you have no distinction to measure it against because Christianity in England is not the Christianity on the continent of Europe. And it all culminated during the Reformation. You can mm-hmm. point all the, the, the north of Europe, essentially, but Switzerland, um, as one exception, Switzerland was Protestant because of an important personality named Yildirik Zwingli. Yildirik Zwingli, the 11th of 11 boys, and they were goat herders, and he went to school, and he became a lawyer. All Roman priests are lawyers of the civil canon laws of Rome. That's what they are. They're not students of the Bible. They don't care about the Bible, but they do teach them very well uh, in the civil canon laws of Rome, which are the code of Justinian of the Roman Empire of the 6th century. 
under the Emperor Justinian, he compiled Justinian, as his behest, his legal beagles, compiled all the major premises of the law of Babylon, going clear back to Babylon, whatever records they could find, and he told them to put them put that code into a perfectly elegant and consistent code. And that is called the Code of Justinian. The French form is called the Code Napoleon. The German form is called the Code of Bismarck of the year 1900. But both of those are just uh, the Justinian's code tweaked. And the canon law of the Greek Orthodox Church and of the Roman Church is that code put to an ecclesiastic purpose. And that code was intended, the Pope of Rome pronounced this and made it clear that code was intended, when he put it in place, to supplant the Bible as the logos, as the logos. The logos yeah. is the word, translated word in John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He, the logos, was in the beginning with him. Of course, John the Apostle there is talking about Jesus Christ, and what logos means is important. It's not, it's not some long, drawn-out philosophical idea that takes books. I've read books on what logos means from the Roman, Romanist point of view and from the linguist point of view, but it all comes down to one thing. Logos is a word from the tribunals of Rome that signified a proven fact. That's all. A fact proven by what? Evidence. Evidence, and that's what John is presenting there. That's why he starts with that word. That word is all about evidence. I've got the evidence. He says in First John, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, what we have heard, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, speaking of the word, the logos of Jesus Christ. He said, part, I was there. I've seen it. I heard it. I even touched his body, and I held it in the resurrected state. I'm giving you my affidavit of what I saw and heard. And that's what all us Christian folk are called to do, give an affidavit of what we have experienced in our guts and our experience with the Bible. When I talk here and I talk about the Bible, people say, well, you sure act sure yourself, Brent. You think you know everything? Oh, I hear that all the time. Well, I'm giving my testimony. That's all. You take it or leave it. You're the jury. I give my testimony of my experience of almost 50 years with my head deep in the Bible. And years before that, just learning some stories when I was a kid. And all the experiences I've had in life, whatever my experiences are, whatever your experiences are, will come together and you will form conclusions. And it's my job to give you my evidence, my testimony. The word ecclesia, translated church, means subpoenaed witness group. Well, subpoenaed to do what? Oh, to give your give to give evidence. That's what. And that's what a witness does, and that's what the Bible says we are, and that's the primary job of God's people. And they will do it. If you're overwhelmed with what God has done for you, you're going to say it. And you're going to, you've experienced. Mm -hmm. What have I experienced? I'll tell you what I've experienced. I've experienced forgiveness of sin. I've experienced being taken out of the sewage pit and put on high ground, clean, washed up, and made an heir of the creator of the universe. I've experienced that. Do you want to experience that? Well, if you experience it, then you can say the same thing. Roger, are you going to say something? I was going to say me too. Oh, I'm just on a me too deal here. God help us, my friend. You want to go to hell? Of course you don't want to go to hell. Uh, I'm going to stop talking and somebody's got a question. Oh, Samuel. Yeah, I was going to open it up for questions and comments anyway, Samuel. So good timing. What you got, buddy? 
Yeah, Brent, I've got a translation question. Um, in the Beatitudes, when the word blessed is being used repeatedly, do you find that a good translation? I found it. I find it sufficient, but the problem is good, yeah, but the problem is this with that word blessed. It's hackneyed. It's like the word faith, grace. I call them Sunday school buzzwords. People like them because they mm-hmm. sound beautiful. They pop in a pretty sound in your head and give you fuzzy feelings, but few people stop to ask, what do they mean? So, so I don't like it for that reason. There are words that I like. Blessed is a word I like because I know what it means. It's an old Anglo word and it has to do with blood. It has to do with the application of blood. Blessed is are the meek for they shall inherit the land, he says. Blessed? What does that really mean? That means the blood has been applied. That's what it means. You're blessed. That means the blood has been applied. And when God says, when I see the blood, if you've applied the blood, remember the Passover story? We're in the Passover narrative on Sundays on Patriot Soapbox. When I see the blood, I will skip over your house. The blood has been applied. There's power in the blood. We used to sing these songs when I was growing up. Power in the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And the precious blood of the Lamb, the life. The Bible says, Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why the law says you don't eat blood from animals. No, don't do that. That's dangerous too, by the way. But... The life of flesh is in the blood. Well, when what does he mean? Well, when God made our grandpa Adam and our grandma Eve, God rest their souls. Don't talk evil about your parents and your grandparents. God bless them. Well, they made mistakes, but God bless them. The covenant was made with Adam. I'm a recipient of that covenant. I'm a beneficiary of that trust settlement. But when, uh, yeah. when God made him, the Bible says he breathed into his nostrils the nephesh, the nephesh of Kai, life. What is the nephesh? It is the breath of life. The old translations say breath of life. Why? Because the life, it's respiration is what it is. The life is in the blood. You take the blood away, the life goes away. Now, why is that significant? This plays throughout the whole Bible and the redemption story. Because Jesus Christ, when he resurrected, where was his blood? The Bible makes it clear when that Roman soldier thrust that spitter into his side to ensure he was dead before he took him down off the timber. They nailed him to a post, remember. Mm-hmm. And the, the rule was he had to be dead before he was taken down. So he took that Roman javelin and shoved it into his side. What does, the, what does the record say? What does the testimony of the evangelist say? Outpoured what? Water and blood. His body was bled, just like you'd stick a hog or stick a, we used to stick hogs. Mm-hmm. That means right. you, you put a bullet at a certain place in their skull. And dad had a way of making a cross from their ears to do that. And that hog went down without feeling a thing. And then immediately you had your knife sharpened up and you shoved it into his jugular. Mm -hmm. He would bleed. You don't want that blood in the flesh and the heart is still going. And that blood pumps out and Mm it's done in slaughterhouses the same way for that reason. Well, Jesus Christ, it's brutal, friends, what they did to Jesus Christ. It's bloody. It is ugly. That's why the Bible says the cross, I say the timber, the post, whatever it is of Christ is an offense 
to them who are not the elect, the chosen. When you're crucified, you actually suffocate to death. That's how that's, right. that's how you die. It's over the top, Roger. The suffering uh-huh. yes. that our our God went through in human flesh. Well, right. but He's paying the penalty for our wrongdoing. He paid it because we. He said, "You you can't you can't resurrect yourself from the dead. I can pay the penalty. I can suffer, and I can resurrect myself from the dead because I'm God. I'm the author of life. So you just stand out of the way, and I'll take it for you." And that's what he did. But he he didn't have any blood. I'm going to get right. to this point real quick, Roger. Then I want you to comment. Don't forget what you're going to say. Well, no, I won't. It's okay. it's sickening, actually. Go okay. ahead. One one thing. When Jesus Christ, you see in the, in the, again, the record of the testimonies of the evangelist, the four gospels, in his resurrected body, it says that he says of himself, I am flesh and what? Bone. Bone. Okay. Not bone. Uh-huh. And the point of that is his blood was drained out. He's the author of life. He's the source of all life, and he can mm-hmm. do it any way he wants. And he wants to show us and glorify himself in his power. He has life without blood. That rod of Aaron that budded that was in the evidence box called the Ark of the Covenant protected. It proves with the evidence that God creates life from himself spontaneously. Go ahead, Roger. Samuel, did you want to add something there also? Yeah, I want to just interject. uh, Old-time Baptist teaching on blessed probably would have been translated happy. Would you well, agree with it, that? Yes. Here, here's the result of being under the blood. That's right. Here's the result of being under the blood. You are, you're glad, you're happy. And you know, people make much of that because that is when you said blessed or happy. Yes, that it's a strong aspect of that word. Now I translate it. Uh, I, I try to get a stronger aspect to it. I I don't know how to get the blood in it without hyphenating the word. I want to be efficient, but I translate it this way in every case. It occurs in the Bible, Old Testament, Barak, New Testament, Makarios. In both cases, I translate happy-go-lucky. Happy-go-lucky. And that is a strong signification of what it means also. People say, oh, there's no luck with God. Oh, yes, there is. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes, there is. What is luck for crying out? What is luck? It's another word for human ignorance. That's what it is. And I quote Jevons, the man that invented our pop, our, the principles of our present computers, a logician, wrote a book called Logic years and years, about 100 years ago. And one of his chief statements in that book, his conclusion, he was a mathematician, but he says uh, chance is another chance, luck, fortuitous are just words for human ignorance. Why? Because God knows everything. There is no chance with God. There is no luck. But from the human perspective, he presents it that way to us. He says, yes, the casting of the dice, the throwing of the dice, the the casting of the lot is from Yehovah. He happens. The one who makes all things happen. He happens. And the whole disposing of gambling is under whose control? Yehovah. That's what he said. What is gambling? Gambling is me operating in the realm of my human ignorance and having fun doing it and thinking maybe God will be Lady Luck, we say. That's a pagan way of saying it. Lady Luck will be on my side. But we do recognize that God, the gods, but in Christianity, he says, no, it's me. I control gambling. I control the outcome of all gambling. There's nothing I don't control. I'm God. And he's happened. Now, the word, the word you said, happy, 
is one way, that's the result of the things I'm talking about. Applying the blood, God's in absolute control. He's the angel of death in the Passover narrative of Exodus 12. He's the source of life to, the, to God's elect. On and on it goes. He, all things are of him, through him, and back to him. Roger, before Samuel chimes in or somebody else, did you get to say what you were going to say? No, I didn't. It's just something I saw the other day that continues to stick with me, and you kind of jolted it a little bit on this crucifixion thing. Oh. Are you ever? You probably don't want Brent. Cause you don't watch Josh, but you know, you know about RT, right? Russia Today. Oh yes, yeah. I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really honest, straightforward network. Yeah. Well, they've been banned in the U.S., of course, oh. but uh, Bitshoot, which I frequent, has uh, some of their little episodes. And there was one the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I watched, and it was uh, in a one of the Israeli pre- uh, prisons in southern Lebanon when they had controlled Lebanon years ago. Uh-huh. And the Israelis have tried to shell it and demolish it because it's so damning. And uh, this reporter was given a tour of what's left of that prison. And uh-huh. it's a high on the highest hill around there. I don't remember the name of it or anything. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's on the highest hill. And you could see from the background of the camera when he was shooting the all around the area that was below it. Right. Uh-huh. And so at one part of the prison, they had a kind of a pole up on the side and I can't remember what he referred to it as but they would take some of those prisoners the Lebanese and they would crucify them and then yank them up oh 20 feet above the ground where they could be seen by all those Lebanese all everywhere around because of the vantage point and they would electrocute them crucified well, the, yeah, I, don't, I believe it, Roger. Uh, men are cruel. They're, they're more cruel today than they were even in Roman times. But the Anglo-Saxon, the common law word for crucifixion is, is gibbet. gibbet. Right, right. And uh, it's been a part of our culture. Hanging, hanging, we call it ha- hangsman's noose, all that. That's gibbet. Uh-huh. It comes in many different forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes hanging on wood is the big deal. That's why... Gallows uh, in our English-speaking culture have been wooden gallows. Mm-hmm. Or as the Bible says, cursed, that's the opposite of blessed, cursed is everyone who hangs on wood. The old translation yeah. say, cursed the, is he who hangs on no, tree. Well, ahead. we need to bring that back in spades real quick. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. I, Jesus, I Christ, Jesus Christ was hung cursed on wood for our sake. Right. Go ahead. Let me see if anybody else in the audience has any questions or comments. We can get off on these jags, and Brent can just go for two hours in a blink of a minute. And I I always like to get some feedback from the audience and stop and involve you folks. So if any of you have got questions or comments, now's your time. Hi, Bob. Hello. Hello. This is Abram. Hello. Can you hear me? Hey, Abram. Yep. Hello. Hey, uh. Yeah, we got you, bud. You know, uh, Masons, okay, perfect. Masons are all men, right? So if a Mason has a sex change, can you still go to the lodge? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had to deal with that legal question yet. Maybe I will sometime. I don't Brent, know. I wanted to add, you mentioned earlier Eastern Star and Demolay. Well, Demolay's named after Jacques Demolay, who was evidently the fair-haired boy that uh, got his head cut off that day that they jumped on the uh, on the Templars there uh, in Paris. I thought that was for young men, Demolay. 
Well, the ones I, again, I was in, here's what happened. I'll give you my testimony and people can do with it what they think is best or put it in their computers and figure out what it means. But I was a small town and I was in town on Saturday nights and people go to town. I was in town. I don't remember the circumstances. I was a teenager. I was, I don't know, maybe 15 or something. And uh, I had a shirt tail cousin that her dad was raised by, uh, by my uncle Aldi, who was my great grandmother's brother. A lot back then, it seemed like I knew a lot of people that uh, people just took them in and raised them, you know, because their parents died or something. Nobody, mm-hmm. there wasn't any adoption laws applied. They just took care of each other. You know, mm-hmm. That's, her dad was like that. She's passed away now. She was my age. She got cancer about 10 years ago. Judy, Judy Smith. And, uh, you know, I was always trying, trying to hang around with the girls if I could find them when I went to town, you know, we're the girls, you know, <laughs> that's the way us boys were. And, uh, somehow I got, uh, following around to some of the girls that I knew Judy and her friends. And, uh, they went in the Mason's lodge and I just, I followed them in. I had, I had been there when I was a kid with Aunt Hazel, when she was instituted as, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, oh, I was a little familiar with it. Uh, normally I wouldn't go in there. My family wasn't connected officially. And, uh, I followed them upstairs and those girls saw me and they ran and gathered up all the idolatry that was there and tried to throw blankets over it and cloth. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, you're not allowed to see any of this. You're not allowed to see it. Well, that shocked me a little bit. Of course, I've never, yeah. I've never forgotten it. See, it's secret. It is idolatry. Clearly, I saw pagan idols. I saw pagan idols. I don't know how they used them. I wasn't there. But as time went on, I didn't think much of it then. There are a lot of things I didn't know and didn't really care. But then, when I became more attuned to idolatry, what idolatry is, and I, my interaction with the Word of God and teaching it over the decades, I said, "Wow." That was some serious, ugly stuff. Of course, any idolatry is serious, ugly stuff. What is idolatry? Idolatry is three-dimensional figures, not two-dimensional, not pictures. Two-dimensional, uh, two-dimensional um, idol- not idolatry. We call <laughs> if it's two-dimensional and used as an aid in worship, it's called an icon. Oh, the Eastern okay. Church, the Orthodox Church, is big on icons, uh-huh. not idols. The Western church is big on icons and idols, two-dimensional and three-dimensional. When I did the debate on the Constitution with Ted, and I'm thankful for Ted, too, by the way, the more I, well, I'm I'm doing a whole series. I've done over 30 hours on the subject that I tried to do with Ted, and Ted's the one that is the impetus for me to do that, and I appreciate him for that reason. But coming back to the idols, uh, Ted says the Constitution of the United States is the is the greatest idol that America has ever worshipped. He said, it's crazy. Well, I said, well, it may be, you may think it's false doctrine, but don't say it's an idol. Uh, that's, that's unbiblical. That's not an idol. An idol is a three-dimensional figure. It has 360 degrees around it. Uh, the Bible's clear. All the words that are used for idols describe that kind of a thing, a representation of some something that you attribute the power of, of godhood, lawgiverhood to living or dead or living man, an animal, uh, something you make with your hands, a Christmas tree, all those things, taking some part of creation and say, and attributing to it the power 
of the sovereign God of all creation. That's called idolatry. That's why we say, of course, swearing, swearing by your, affirming, affirming, instead of swearing by the maker of heaven and earth, affirming in support of your promise is idolatry. Why? Because you're attributing the power to keep your promise to yourself. That's idolatry. Let's get real about this, but things in writing may be false doctrine, but they're not idolatry. Somebody started to say something. Would somebody try and say something? Yeah. Yes, the gentle lady oh. from um, Connecticut, Linda ah. Louise. Uh, I want to uh, share my appreciation, Brent. Greetings, uh, Roger, for the militia class. We did our third one yesterday. The only thing that uh, I'm sad about is I have to miss my 11 to 1 uh, daily event with Roger. That being said, I wanted to know that uh, the difference between an organized militia, which is the National Guard, correct me if I'm wrong, versus an unorganized militia. And the uh, Amendment 2 says a well-regulated militia. So could you give me clarity of how something unorganized can be well-regulated? I yield. Well, (laughs) boy, I'm glad you brought that up, and I appreciate your encouragement. I'm glad you brought it up because I'm going to jot that down, and I've got to cover those points next week, hopefully. Because if you've got a question like that, I know others do. do. Sure. Well, well regulated was the one thing you asked about. And the other one is organized versus unorganized. Well, the National Guard under the Dick Act, 1903, I believe it was. Dick, that was the name of the congressman that pushed it. He was an Army Reserve officer, thought he knew everything. He was going to get it all organized. Well, that's a false distinction. The, well, number one, you made this point. I'm glad you said it because I need to talk about it. Uh, the, the National Guard is not the organized militia. No, it says it is. Congress, by law, says it is, but that doesn't mean it is. Congress says a lot of things that aren't true, as does the Supreme Court of the United States. My point is, my friends, uh, who has to decide what is true here? I'll tell you who has to decide. You do. And if you don't look at it that way, you're part of the problem. Our common law tradition, our Christianity says, no, we check check things out with the court of last resort, which is the Bible. We check it out with the Bible. We find a principle in that book. And I've discovered over the decades that God speaks to everything. Some He speaks to it. We can find the answers. And then if we add the application of our common law, that puts legs on it, and away we go. And God has given us that too. But no, the, if, what, is the, what is organized versus unorganized? Well, first, we, we made the point yesterday, I think, that you don't j- join the militia. No, no, you, if you're born male and you're over age 20, you are the militia, period. It's what God does, not what you do. It's like all of God's law, it's what he does. Like your salvation, it's what he does. It's not what you do. You're passive in it in this sense. You, you, uh, you, you didn't make yourself be born. No, no, birth is something that you don't do. You're passive in this sense. You don't make it all happen if you want to enjoy it. You learn what it is your father wants you to do, and you start figuring out how to do it, and you'll enjoy it. But if you don't do that, he's going to take you to the woodshed, and it's going to be real miserable. Uh, give up while you can. Try to go along peaceably is my advice. But no, It'll save you a lot of heartache and pain. <laughs> now, what we heard, what we just heard there was Roger giving us his testimony. <laughs> true, true. He's had personal experience to go into the woodshed. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Back in my divorce, I'd start bargaining with God. You know, I'd go, uh, you know, hey, 
God, if you're real, light that bush out there on fire, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Just don't try it. Oh, yeah. People say, well, I laid out a fleece. You know, that's the story in the book. of Job. <laughs> he said, and he wants God to do certain things. Well, God does certain things, but what is narrative is not normative. In other words, he's not giving us leave to do that. No. We don't make deals no. with God like that. God He'll show you. He'll show you he's real, but he's going to yeah. do it in his time and on his terms. Remember, that's right. And remember, good, Roger. Uh, what did Jesus Christ say? He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign from God. He's looking for that sign. John, show me. And he's saying, I already have. Look up at the stars, the sun, the moon. Mm-hmm. Look, at, look at creation around you. Look at your own body. I have showed you. And you're saying, show me more. Well, how much do I need to show you? <laughs> right, you right. <laughs> I well, gave you, but <laughs> you know that old joke about the flood there on the river and the people uh, oh, yeah. at, going up to the top of the house, you know, and they tried to send them a boat and they didn't want to get off and they <laughs> sent them a helicopter and they waved it off and they ended up drowning. And they, when they got up there, said, why didn't you save? He said, hell, I sent you a boat and a plane. What do you want? <laughs> Boy, we're we're a we're a hard bunch. We're a hard case of a hard bunch, boy. I tell you, it's bad. It's bad. But uh, but if God opens your eyes, you'll start seeing these things. That's true. And then you will have that joy as you continue to learn His will and safeguard it. You'll end up doing it, and then then you'll be uh, you'll have that uh, application. You've got the application of blood, and if you've got the application of blood, God will get His obedience out of you. You will learn to love His will. He'll take you to the woodshed and he'll teach it to you. And by the way, nobody gets out of that. The Bible promises, what does it say? Hebrews, uh, God takes to the woodshed every son he receives. What's the stress there? Uh, Chasten is the old word. That means he just beats the daylights out of you. He beats the ugliness out of you. That's what that means. Spare the rod, spoil the child. God applies that to the Christian life. He will put it on you. Just be happy while you're crying that that's proof, my friends, that builds your confidence. You You belong to him. You know, if you love your children, you'll discipline them. You'll make it hurt. If it doesn't hurt, they're such hard. Oh, I can tell you a story. Go ahead. How many many times did I hear this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? (laughs) Well... Yeah. I heard that a couple of, more than a couple oh, of times. That's why that's why parents have a hard time doing it. But my friends, God, <laughs> he didn't hesitate to do it. He's a perfect father. He gets what he wants out of his children. He doesn't let them go. They aren't wayward. No, he'll beat them back into position. That's why I'm saying, just go along easy. It's going to come. It's going to come. Yeah. But don't fight it. You know the thing that bothers me the most, I think, of lessons that are very obvious that aren't taught to the generations these days is lack of respect for your elders. Well, Roger, you're bringing up, as you know, probably from being around me for a number of years, a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And part of that discipline is learning how big God is and respecting him for what he is. And that that's we're talking about to the point of awe, A-W-E. He's a big God. And if you're not a man and a woman that understands big God, big Godder, you're not a big Godder, he'll move you in that direction. And pretty soon you'll just, after you learn, the Bible says stages of development. Well, I don't want to talk about that. You brought up a different subject. Honoring your father and mother is the key to all of life. Well, 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 not only that, just people older than you, period. 
Well, I'm getting to that, Roger. That's good. I'm glad you said that. But honoring, not mother, not, but father. Well, I know a lot of people say, well, I love my mother. My dad's a drunk. I don't have any respect for him at all. Really? Let's see how far that gets you. I'll tell you something. Mm-hmm. They, it's, it's consecutive in the Bible. It's consecution. Those two words, mother, father and mother, are joined by the wow, what we call in grammar, the wow consecutive. That's the letter. And what it means is honor your father first. What will be the inevitable result? You'll, on, you'll honor your mother, too. Concentrate on honoring father, and you will honor mother. And if you honor father, then you will naturally, the respect that God commands of us will go out to those God commands us to respect, including other older people, as you said, Mm -hmm. Roger. Yeah, but somebody said Yeah, and I've come in direct confrontation with that twice with with young women. And a 20- and 25-year-old women being absolutely rude, insolent to somebody three times their age that knows one hell of a lot more life than they do. But their arrogance is just incredible to me. I'm I'm, I'm astounded by it. That that is more of a something that people teach their children, okay? Now, both of them. Both these girls came out in different situations where uh, there there was problems in both situations. I can understand it, but boy, you could really consciously see the lack of that teaching. And buddy, that was drilled into me. Yes, you were in a southern culture, and that had a lot to do with it. It goes back generations, but it's not. You said that. Oh, you knew a lot, a lot more, had a lot more experience. That's true. But that's as true as that is. That's just. That's not the reason for the respect. The ultimate reason for the respect of elders is because God said so, period. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But it is true. They do have uh, the opportunity maybe to tell you something you need to know. But that's you don't need the Bible to know that. I was in the Far East, and when I was there at that time, I was in a world that was like being on Mars. I mean, the East is East, is West is West. I was in places that I remember in Korea at that time. They were under martial law still. And I, I would see these old Korean men with their their mustaches were thin but long, and their their chin hair was long hanging down, and they were dressed in a in a really nice Korean traditional clothing. And I I don't know what it's called, but it doesn't look Western. And they got a cane. They're walking down the road. I'm walking behind this one guy. He stops on the sidewalk downtown, turns toward the wall, and starts pissing on the wall. Now you say, oh, Brent, you shouldn't say that. Well, it's in the King James Bible, that, and it says that, that way. Uh, the word has become a little bit risque. It's a medical term to the French originally. It's a French word. But what it means is that you urinate. Of course, that's a fancy word that uh, people use now. But he was doing it right in front of everybody. I thought, what in the world is that all about? And I walked around and went on, and then I saw two or three other men Doing the same thing up against the wall, old men. And then, I, are you there, Roger? I'm here. I'm listening. Oh, and then I found out later. I found out later that when you reach a certain age, I said you don't need the Bible to know respect your elders. But when you reach a certain age in that culture, that's a traditionally a pagan culture. It's not now. It's one of the most Christian countries in the world, by the way. Now, and when I was there, I could tell you stories about how I saw that developing, but incipient form. But uh, in their culture, they uh, they give absolute deference to elderly or elderly people. Mm-hmm. You don't need the Bible to know that. 
They haven't known it for centuries, and they've done it. Uh, you may object to the way they do it, but they did it. Now, we have the Bible, and it puts the perfect balance. God has spoken. It puts the perfect balance to how that respect is supposed to work, and it has nothing to do with anybody earning any respect. God help us. Get past that. Well, my, I think you ought to get to respect the old-fashioned way and earn it. No, that's not what God says. God says, no, here's who you respect, and this is why. And if, they, if they're uh, worthy of respect, uh, it makes it easier, but that doesn't change your duty in the least. Not in the least. Agreed. Thank Brent, you. there was somebody trying, I think, had the mic open there. Somebody want to say something? A question, comment? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask Brent two questions. Brent, I've never had the benefit of uh, being around farm animals, and the Bible talks about sheep and goats. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about behavior of sheep and goats, if you have any experience, and uh, feel free to expand that to any any farm animals that you may have experience with. Then my uh, second question is if you could briefly discuss the idea of uh, silence deems consent. Ooh, good one. Good one. They're both good. And I'm, Roger, uh, anyway, Roger, I'm going to talk about, I don't know everything about all animals, but yeah, I grew up with animals. I didn't grow up with people. I grew up with animals. And I, <laughs> I, that's not exa- an exaggeration. I was with them morning and evening, even when I was in school, back where I come from uh, in the Wabash Valley, everybody did the feeding and you did it twice a day. We called it doing the feeding. Dad said, do the feeding. Mom said, mind your manners. I mean, that's what I remember. And he did the feeding. <laughs> And when, I, when I went out to do the feeding, I'd get my lantern in the morning and uh, before I'd hear the fella um, um, three quarters of a mile south, it'd be dark. I'd be laying in bed in the upstairs room of that old farmhouse and I'd hear him start up his pickup truck because it had one of those fan belts that squeaked real loud, you know. And when he'd rev that thing up, you know how it would get louder. Then he'd idle it down. Well, he was, I don't know where he went. I didn't, I knew what his name was, but he'd, he'd leave for the house for daylight. Well, that was my alarm clock. So I'd roll out of bed and I'd go down the stairs and go outside and drain my radiator off the end of the front porch. That's the way everybody did it back then. And then I'd go out to the pump house, which was just a few steps from the front door and the lantern was hanging there and I'd strike a match and I'd light it. And then I'd start down over the hill toward the creek with my lantern. And there was, uh, we had our hay piled up there along the road. And I'd take my lantern. And then by the time I got down to where that was, he'd come roaring by me. Uh, that fellow that started that truck, that was my alarm clock. And then I'd start feeding the cattle. But I wouldn't start feeding them until I called them. And I'd start doing like my granddad did. We'd call the cattle. And he had a certain way of doing it. And they recognized it. And and they'd start coming from back on the baker, and they'd start coming up. And by the time I got the hay over the fence and uh, had it busted up and took the baling wire and hung it on the barbed wire, and we hung all our baling wire on the barbed wire so it would be handy everywhere all around us. We didn't have duct tape. But we had baling wire. It was useful for everything. And uh, the cattle would start coming. They'd recognize my voice. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, not somebody else's voice. They don't recognize anybody else's voice. And he said, they follow me. Animals are that way. Uh, Sheep recognize the soft voice of their master. You don't call sheep. You just start talking to them. They know your voice and they will get behind you. When you start walking, they will follow you. Sheep are dependent. I had two neighbors on both sides that had sheep. One of them was the 
was the three-time national sheep shearing champion, old Car- Carl Southard. And then on the, across the creek on the other side was Lee Jones. He lived on the Jones place, and I'd go over and help him worm his sheep. Now, I didn't aim for this to happen, but I got a, an entire carcass of a sheep and all the meat out of it because it did happen. And we'd grab those sheep. They had long wool at that time of the year. I'd grab them. I'd throw them up on their haunches, and he'd take this tool with a great big pill, and he'd it was worming medicine to worm them, and he'd shove it deep enough into their mouth, into their throat, it'd go down their gullet because they didn't want to mm-hmm. swallow it. That was my job. I was young and strong, and, boy, I was really strong. I ain't bragging, just a fact. When I was young, I was a lot stronger than I am now. Obviously, a lot of men are. I would. I could throw those sheep. I could throw hogs. I could throw calves. I could, well, it's nice to think about when you're young, isn't it, Roger? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'd grab them, throw them up on their haunches. They're sitting there with their mouth open. He'd shove it in there, and I had this one, this big U, E-W-E, that's the female. He'd shove that in there, and I'd. I was holding her, and all of a sudden I could feel her. You can feel dead weight. Dead weight's different than live weight. Dead weight's heavier. I don't know why, but it is. My father told me this. The first experience he had was at the Battle of Okinawa, the, experience, the first experience of, uh, well, of nasty things. And the USS Comfort, a hospital ship, a kamikaze hit it. And he and a bunch of other men, boys really, were detailed to go remove the bodies. And they were supposed to put them in body bags and the parts, lay them in the, these, these stretchers, you know. And he said that, uh, you remember this one, he was supposed to cry out the name on the dog tag, if they could find it, the name. And there was a fellow there writing it down and identifying the body parts, you know. And uh, this one fella, he hollered out his name and, and, and it says right on there where he's from. And he hollered that out. And it was a place pretty close to home, pretty close to home. And dad said, you know, we'd been island hopping a lot, but that's where the war really got real to me. When this guy from, I knew I was carrying the body of a guy close from home a neighboring. Mm-hmm. Well, I could understand that, but he said, he always told me, he said, Brent dead weight is different than live weight. And when you're Paul bearer, he'd tell me about being a Paul bearer, which I eventually was called to do on different occasions. And dad was called a lot to be a Paul Beller bearer. He said, you got to learn how to handle dead weight differently. Well, that's the way that sheep was. It was dead weight. She was dead. I figured it out finally. I said, Lee, she just kicked the bucket. How old is she? He said, oh, she's young. Well, here's the deal about sheep. Sheep get scared real easy, real easy. What does the Bible say? God analogizes. We're not sheep. He analogizes us to sheep in relation to him. The Lord is my shepherd, my Mm -hmm. shepherd. Not he, He's not just any shepherd. He's my shepherd, and I am utterly helpless before him. That's fact. Do I get scared? I scare like any man, Roger. Um, I'm assuming you do too. I scare. That doesn't mean I can't be courageous if I need to be. God has put the gumption in my gumption, and he's made me do things I didn't think I could do, but don't think I wasn't scared when I did it. I was. But this, But God uses sheep because sheep can get so scared even when they're young just worried, not knowing what's going on. They can have a heart attack and die. I learned that about sheep. And that's what he analogizes us to. That's why the Bible says you add up all the commands of the Bible. Uh, there's one command said different ways, but there's one command that outnumbers them all. Fear not, be not afraid. Why? For I am with thee. I will never forsake thee or leave thee. I'm the shepherd that's always here. And as long as the perfect shepherd is there, the one who has never lost a battle, the, the, 
the commander of the hostiles of God, the hosts, well, you're okay. Uh, greater is he that is in you. This is a spiritual four by four. I was told this when I was a kid. Now I get it. I get it. I'm going to pass it on to you. A spiritual four by four. First John four, four. Greater is he that right. is in you than he that is in the world. That's an important point. Don't forget the verse. Sam or somebody wants to say something, but I won't, don't want to get distracted. Yeah, we want to get on to that yeah. second question, too. Yeah, so. I don't, what is that second question? I don't remember. Yeah, the silence deems consent. Oh, uh, well, should I let Sam chime in? Yeah, too? Sam, what you got, buddy? And we'll get, we've got that one in our memory peg there. Samuel, please. Um, yeah, uh, I, you didn't get to go. Uh, how about this, Brent? Um, the sheep are poor in spirit, and the goats are rich in it. Yeah, uh, let's get to that real quick. Thanks, Sam. Samuel. If I don't say Samuel, it's not. It's just because I forgot. No, I'm not trying to insult you. I like I like the name Sam, but uh, you like Samuel. That's you're you're entitled to be called what you want to be called. I, I Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, my Christian goats, name. Oh yeah, I get it, and that's a beautiful name. It means a lot. You know what it means, of course, don't you? Samuel, am I off? Uh-uh. Samuel, you know what the, you know what your name means. Uh, something to do. I know you don't quite agree with this, Brent, because I've heard you commented on before. But uh, name of God is one translation. Well, the 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 verb it's it's a compounded word, and L is on the end. Of course, L is login. You say God, but Shema, Shema is a well known well-known verb in the Old Testament, and Shema, as some people say, is third-person singular masculine. It means he hears. He hears. Um, He hears lawgiver. And if you go back, and that's what it means, he hears God. If you go back and read about Samuel's childhood, Samuel the prophet, he's the one that was laying in bed, and uh, the little boy, and, and, and Yahoha said to him, Samuel. And, uh, uh-huh. He, he ran to his master and uh, that was teaching him and said, uh, did you call me? He said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Well, that happened about three times. And finally, see, that goes along with his name. He was hearing God. And he was named uh, he who hears God is one way to understand the name. He who hears God. Well, at any rate, getting back to the, the goats, I'll, I'll talk about that if that's all right, and then I'll go on to the silence. They're both good subjects. And the reason mm-hmm. I want to talk about the goats and appreciate Samuel bringing them up, there's a lot of words for goats in the Old Testament, and there are, goats are all over the Old Testament, And but usually it's tran- the words are translated indiscriminately the same. It's odd that uh, they do that. I suppose in those earlier days they didn't really know how to make the distinctions because the study of Hebrew was new. Well, I've wondered about this one word. It's The name of the word is al. L, it's all over the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it occurs 183 times. And just two or three days ago, after all these decades of hard study, I finally came to resolution of what that word means. You know, goats are often symbols of evil, as you know. Yes, yes. But not always in the Bible. But there's one goat, and this, this one goat, this L, this description of a goat. You know, there's a, there's a word for a billy goat, a male goat. There's a word for a ribald billy goat. To put it in raw terms, a horny billy goat. There's a word for that. 
and it's used in the appropriate places. And you can see clearly he's using the right word in that case. But um, the word al, it's uh, aleph, yod, lamad, three consonants. Uh, they always translate it ram, all the translations. Well, it doesn't mean ram. I can see that now. I finally saw the correlation between two words used over and over again in the Old Testament. Just two or three days ago, I went through every use of that word to try to discern. I said, i got to find out what this word means. Well, uh, it was always coupled up with the word that means billy goat. So you billy goat and, and then this word. Well, the translation, translations say billy goat and ram. Well, that's the same thing. What's, what? This got to be have a different meaning. Finally, it dawned on me because of the context what he was saying. This second word is a castrated billy goat. Oh, <laughs> there you go. And it becomes clear that he he is the goat that represents evil. The cast, and here's why it gets richer because the castrated billy goat is the bellwether. The bellwether. Well, what's a bellwether? You've probably heard the word. Well, the word weather, not W-H-E-A-T-H. It's not the word weather like the sun, the moon, the stars, that, and the rain and the snow, and not that kind of weather. Uh, this is spelled differently. It's W-E-T-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. And it's the word for a castrated goat. For example, if a, a horse is castrated, you call him a gilding. Well, if a goat is castrated in Anglo-Saxon, we call him a weather. But because he is a weather, he'd been used at the slaughterhouses, maybe still is some places. They put a little bell around his neck. He's docile, mm-hmm. stupid, and he's the bellwether. He's the one that they put the tingling bell on, and all the other goats follow him to the slaughter. They don't have to the Judas. The, they call him the Judas goat. The Judas goat. That's right, the Judas goat. Well, the Bible is used that way, or the the, the, the the uh, the bellwether, we call him. He's the leader, the leader into evil, the leader into evil. He is the useful idiot of the evil empire that is stupid, doesn't even know what he's doing, and he's leading people into hell. Makes perfect sense. That's, yep. And that's the symbol used 183 times. That word is used in the Old Testament, in the law of God, in the sacrifices, etc., to for men to openly confess by their actions that they're stupid and they're following the bellwether instead of following the true shepherd. When Jesus Christ said, I am the shepherd. May I? He was slapping just a minute. uh, Yeah. Just a minute. Let me finish this thought. He was slapping in the face, all false religion because the Hebrew word for the shepherd definite article is he row hero. That's where we get our word hero. What is the hero? The hero shepherds of the ancient world, Nimrod, Pharaoh, the emperor of Rome, the emperor of of all the South American countries, and Hitler, and on and on, the Pope of Rome, imperial. What are they? They call themselves what? The shepherd. And that's the ancient, that's the very definition of Antichrist. That's another subject. I don't want to go there because it's too much. But too much for one Uh, all of this is very important, and these pic- these word pictures are powerful. Somebody was going to say something. 
Paul quickly. was trying to yeah, get you to give your spiel, yeah. and I, I want you to cover the the do it briefly and cover the second question. Okay, right now. Yeah, I got right about three now, minutes. <laughs> okay, better hurry. Second question: Silence is is deemed consent. That comes in our English speaking world with Henry VIII, who finally got the idea he didn't from a, a priest named Cranmer, who was a young man who was a tutor at a rich man's house. And that's where he met him. He was on a hunting trip and went there for dinner. And the fellow said, finally said, well, why don't you, he's just a young guy. He said, why don't you just, instead of asking the priest if you can divorce your wife, why don't you just look at the Bible and see what it says? And that was the spark of the Bible translation, the Reformation and everything we have here. And it was an evil thing that he wanted to divorce his life, wife. But the Lord do work in mysterious ways, and that is how the Bible began to gain the ascendancy in the English-speaking world. Or the it always had it, but, it, but it's constantly trying to do. It did it, and the Bible became our paper pope. Well, it didn't become our paper pope. It is the final court of last resort. We just didn't recognize it the way we should have, and that's how that happened. Well, he finally got that idea. Eventually, Henry VIII called all of the the priest, the head priest, the leading priest in England into one place, uh, about 200 of them. And he said, well, I've just figured this out, friends. I've just figured out that you've taken an oath of loyalty and commitment to the Pope of Rome, a foreign prince. That means you're guilty of treason to your own country, treason to the crown of England. High treason. You're worthy of death. Does anybody disagree? Well, you know, like Roger said, uh, or somebody said, keep your head down. No, <laughs> keep your head down. Nobody wanted to stick their head up and say, I agree. Nobody wanted to stick their head up and say, I don't, I disagree. There was just dead silence for a long time. You could hear a pin drop. After Henry VIII waited a while, they were all looking up at him. He was on a high platform. He said, I deem your silence to be consent. Therefore, you have two choices. You either repudiate your false oath to a foreign prince and your treason and pay this amount of money to me and help me get rid of all the monasteries and nunneries in England and all the filth that goes with them or get your head chopped off. I'm going to give you a choice. Again, silence. I deem that to be consent. You don't want to get your head chopped off, but you better pay the money because if you don't pay the money... I'm going to chop off your heads. And they call that voluntary compliance? <laughs> it, it was, Roger. They could have. Hey, listen, Roger, been a lot of men, millions of men in the world that have died rather than agree with somebody they didn't want to agree with. Even True. they may have been wrong, but they, you can, you got a choice. You know, the old thing like Jack Benny, the robber puts a gun to his head one night while he's going for a walk, said, your money or your life. Silence. Hey, bud, your money or your life. Silence. Speaking of silence, (laughs) speaking of silence, the whistler is coming up in about 15 seconds and we're dropping your folk and seat free radio. You you stepped on the punchline. Go ahead, Brent. Jack Benny said, I'm thinking it over. This is Brent Allen. Brent Allen Winters, commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. Join our militia class and everything else that you can get there and resource. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Brent, always a treasure, always a pleasure and a treasure to have you on Fridays. I know everybody agrees. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to join us and be with us and help us with these important lessons and understandings. We love you, buddy. 
Well, we feel the same way about you, Sunday. Roger. All of my friends here on the network. Somebody say something. Yeah, who was that saying something right there? The, the, the subject reminds me of uh, Matthew Matthew twenty five thirty one to thirty four, where it talks about put the sheep on the left or the goats on the left, sheep on the right. And how those God, were the you know called his angels. Yeah, those were the castrated sheep, the the weathers, the bellwethers. And I have mm-hmm. to add the word bellwether because they are the leaders. They are the useful idiots that people follow. The oh, false, yeah. The false shepherds. Not yep. the shepherd, the false shepherds. The Judas goats. The Brent, Judas- I, I sent you that thing on hair sheep. Did you, have you? I had never heard of them. I'm assuming you had. Well, now, I do remember you sent me a look here. I've got to go back and review that. Oh, there it is. Yeah, hair sheep. Yeah, that's right. No, I had not heard, heard of them. That's all new. Really? Well, one of our Thor, one of our listeners has some, and that guy on the video said the meat's much better because they doesn't have to produce lanolin to nourish the wool. And the meat tastes different. It's more productive, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was very interested in that. So I am we'll be back tomorrow, folks. Thanks for hanging with us, and I uh, hope you got something out of today. Ciao, ciao.